Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. This week, we are bringing you part two of our interview with Tasha Burks and Michelson, and we hope you enjoy. Speaking of parts that we can play, um, mm. you are currently and, and have, I think, in the past, led Wikipedia hackathons, which sounds rad. I love them. They are rad. They're the raddest. So oh can you God. tell us, first of all, what is that? And yeah. can people get involved and how? Ah, well, the good news is that anyone can edit Wikipedia. And I know you usually hear that's the bad news, but I, I guess it depends what you want to do with it. Um, so I actually, that third grade class I was referring to um, was the first time I ever learned to, I ever learned and taught students to edit Wikipedia. Um, and I started at that time and worked for many years in a funny little corner of a wonderful little corner owner of Wikipedia called Simple English Wikipedia. If you are, yeah, if you are, say, a young child who is intellectually curious about the world, you are constantly annoyed. I have it on good authority from lots of young people I've spoken to that the world thinks that you can only handle a paragraph of information at a time about things that are interesting to you. And that it is rarer than it should be to have nonfiction information delivered in long form at a reading level that you can manage. Oh, so it's, um, it's not the words that are made age appropriate. It's the amount of words. Yeah, huh. exactly. So like if you're really interested in, in something and you're eight or nine, like you want to read a lot about it. I, <laughs> you I know, remember. Right. But but it would be nice if you could understand it. And so that's a, a, a challenging thing. And um, I do not have it on good authority. It is just my interpretation that that was kind of half of the reason that special English Wikipedia was started. I mean, Wikipedia itself is actually written at a very, very high grade level, mostly because, again, the hyperlinking to unfamiliar terms so people can just go ahead and use terms of art everywhere. And also because it's like not very well written frequently. <laughs> um, so simple English Wikipedia is aimed at a English language learners and B people who just haven't had the time on earth to develop high level vocabularies, but who want to know stuff. It is also underpopulated, extremely underpopulated. So there's a lot of room for starting pages from scratch or taking what's called a stub, which is an article that's just a sentence or two and expanding it. Um, I, I once saw a brilliant suggestion that all math teachers should be required to write for simple English Wikipedia for a year before they taught. 
Um, and for those of you out there who are thinking about, for example, science communications, editing simple English Wikipedia might be a super interesting approach to think about. Um, yeah, I see that there are 170,179 articles. It's not very on many. Simple English Wikipedia right now. No, <laughs> no, it isn't. And, and I'm considering I'm, the like billions of things that there are <laughs> to know. Right. And I'm fairly certain that my seventh graders at my current school have written not a small number of those. We tend to uh, add about 30, 30 pages a year. Um, so, yeah. So when I came to my current school, they had already had a tradition of seventh graders writing in special English, simple English Wikipedia. It's simple subject, verb, object sentences. They it's used um we check it very carefully. Everyone, no one panic that seventh graders are writing. It's very heavily checked by teachers and corrected. But um, it is a subject verb object assessment. And um, I teach at an all girls school. And the truth of the matter is that most of the people who write Wikipedia fall into a very narrow profile of humanity, primarily male, primarily young, primarily white that that really, really impacts what gets covered in any parts of Wikipedia. I guess the the first interesting part of the story is that one of the things we do with students, besides talking to them about some of the known statistics about who writes in Wikipedia and what the outcome of that is, um, is for us to have a productive discussion around the quality of Wikipedia through, through the experience of creating content and kind of thinking through what that means and what you learn when you create that content. Um, and we have always required, because that particular lesson, we don't have time to argue with every seventh grader about sources. We use some of those special subjects encyclopedias with um, biographies in them that I've checked out and approved. Um, so one of the things we do beforehand is we make a list of people we're going to write about. They're usually notable women of one kind or another. And I go through and make sure they're covered in the, in the encyclopedias we're using. And over the years, more and more, the women that we want to cover aren't discussed in these, quote unquote, authoritative sources. Uh, when we did notable women activists, we had to go through something like 80 activists to find 30 who were covered in the databases. And so this has driven me to kind of look more and more closely at this question of who is and isn't covered and who is and isn't discoverable in Wikipedia. So um, the easiest thing to say is a survey done in 2013 on what my students like to call adult Wikipedia and what the rest of us think of as just Wikipedia um, at the time on English language Wikipedia, there were 1.6 million biography, biographical pages. Mm -hmm. And at the time, they found that something around 12% of them were women. Oh. Since who, 20, who knew there yes. were so many men? I know. <laughs> it really puts our, our birth ratio is way skewed. So um, there are are a number of groups uh, that have formed since then have been working really aggressively to add women to the narrative in Wikipedia. So now it's up around 
no, this is seven years later, right? It's up around 18% women, um, 16% or so in STEM fields. And it's not just women. Um, all types of minoritized people. Uh, there are there are a wide array of roadblocks. And it's funny because I've been like waxing poetic about this all summer. And I realize my answers are often quite long and like I could spend half an hour being passionate about it is extraordinarily interesting to enter into the process of editing and looking critically at Wikipedia. Um, so I had some high school students who wanted to then have an edit-a-thon. Um, it was supposed to be in late March. So uh, clearly we were, were not, that didn't right. happen. Um, and in June, we decided to go ahead and have it virtually. So I ran a couple of trials with some teacher friends, which turned into weekly three hours a week that we spent uh, each week this summer editing together. Um, and it was a real, it's a real voyage of discovery. Um, editing Wikipedia teaches you very quickly why it's desperately in need of systems to help make it work. And I feel unending gratitude to the people who have had the privilege of, of being able to give the time to build that structure. It also is blatantly clear that who is and isn't building that structure leads naturally to what is and isn't covered. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's, 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 shocking and sometimes traumatic especially like I kind of think all the time like I think this is now a lifestyle for me editing Wikipedia but when you're stuck at home and you're thinking what can I do to make a difference in the real ills that that you know have been facing us for years the construction of authority and who and who doesn't get access to being thought of as authoritative. A physics scholar who doesn't meet the typical profile of someone who's recognized widely in physics and maybe doesn't have any pages that link to her page and finding ways to link in so that people she becomes discoverable is actually meaningful. Right. So yeah. I, I was really fortunate. Um, I was I got a scholarship this summer from the Wikimedia Education Foundation cool. from Wikimedia Education. Yes. Um, to work on COVID-19 pages related to COVID-19. And I got trained how to edit. Um, and, you know, there were like, I don't know, a dozen of us in the class, each working on like one page. Um and they have a tool so that teachers can track work that students are doing, which our group was using. And in the six weeks of the course, the handful of pages we were wor working on were viewed over 300,000 times collectively. Wow. So, wow. So again, when you think about authority as constructing contextual, which as you may tell, be able to tell is a theme in my life. Um, like this is some of the hard work. Yeah, it's activism. It's it is activism, and it's activism that cuts in a lot of directions once you get the whole crowd of Wikipedia editors going. But um, if we come to the end of the period where people are 
undertaking these activities and still the canon in whatever their field is, is white and predominantly male and upper class and, and, and I don't think we've actually gotten anywhere. Uh, so what do you predict the next few years will bring in terms of educational technology? Like, do you see, <laughs> like, do you foresee like Sorry, the that new age? Laugh. <laughs> the Aww. new age of Wikipedia? Like, do you think that there will be, what, what do you, well, what do you see? Am I going to be taught by robots? What do you wish? Yeah. Well, we, I, I hope we won't be taught by robots because, um, the human connection is really important. I mean, I, I have to admit, I was going to write you and say, like, I don't have an answer to that question. And then, like, really, my answer to that question is, like, I, I really, I mean, I do think a lot about the privilege I have of the time I have, that it is my job and also it's my lifestyle to think about information and it's okay that other people sometimes think about other things. And also we need other things done. But <laughs> I, I will admit it. Um, and it's a lot of hard work. But we're so convinced that we can skip critical thinking via technology. And I don't feel that that's taken us. I don't think the track record's good on that. Mm. Um, and it concerns me really, really deeply mm -hmm. that we are looking for ways. I mean, the reason information is hard is because of our essential humanity and the fact that we are different from each other. I mean, search is hard because we don't all say things exactly the same way. If we all expressed the same emotion using the exact same words every time search would be super easy. Speaking of robots. Yeah. Exactly. But humanity is, is beautiful and special and precious and therefore messy. And, and, and I fear that we are going to replace hard thinking with buttons and, and that worries me. Thinking critically is a big part of this next question. Mm. Um, for our listeners who may be bombarded with, I don't know, Facebook posts and Twitter, just all of it. Um, family group texts. Yeah, family group texts mm -hmm. or just phone conversations. What advice do you have for folks trying to combat or just deal with misinformation mm -hmm. in whatever their social circle might be. Right. So um, I was really excited about <laughs> discussing this. Right. I actually, there might be more concision because I was so excited. So um, that question first came from, well, I'm sure it came at me from other places, but uh, one of my spectacular research TAs, um, brought that up we've been talking about making a like a zine that we can well back when we were all in the same place we could leave around school yeah um about that like how do you tell your friend that she's spreading untruths um my both my children 
it turns out, um, I have a 16 year old and an almost 20 year old. And, um, it turns out that they both play this role quite a bit within their various communities. So we sat down and had a talk this morning. And even though I might have thoughts, what I'm going to share with you comes from a high school and a fairly newly minted college student. So they say that the most important thing is to not just start out by telling someone that they're wrong. Uh, that when possible, such as when responding to one of those email chains that get sent around, or they've never seen those probably social network posts or whatever, they think that um, prepping is actually extremely important. They say that when you respond, um, people either think that you're angry with them, or they have a lot of questions that they want answered. So it's kind of good to have your ducks in a row. They suggest really thinking carefully about the sources that you use. So if someone is saying, well, I read that the UN blah, 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 and you think that that's misinformation, that really it is most effective to go back with sources from the UN that demonstrate otherwise. That was the example my 16-year-old gave. Um, he also said really strongly that it's important to think about sources that are meaningful to the person that you're talking to. And this is something that I feel really, really strongly. Um, the New York Times is often an example I use, but... But it's For not what you necessarily choose. If someone believes that the New York Times is a conspiracy <laughs> site, you can't respond to that with, well, you should be using a high quality source like the New York Times. And here I am not talking about anyone at a particular point in the political landscape. Because there are people all over the political landscape who think this mm -hmm. or that about different sources. Now, there are certainly some limitations in this age to that approach. But it really does behoove you to think about the most hearable source by your audience, say. You've got to tailor um, your responses. Yes. Um, my older son, who does this a lot as a practice says that it's important to make it a consistent enough practice that it's normal and regular. He reminded me that the first time you try to have this conversation with a conversation like this with someone, it will make that it'll be awkward. It'll probably make someone angry. But by the fifth time you are teaching each other something, it's part of a trust that you've built. Yeah, wise children. I brainwash early, brainwash often. Um, I would say that the corollary to that point is you have to listen to. Yeah. You yeah. aren't the single holder of knowledge, no matter what you believe. You're lovely. Every, each and every one of you, wonderful human being. It doesn't mean you're always right. And I would add to that, that I actually have been making a practice to read news really diversely again with the caveat that like, this is part of my job and my lifestyle, but 
reading all around the political spectrum, as well as different, like read Filipino American community newspapers, African American community newspapers, Chinese American, you know, just like there are lots of different kinds of perspectives. Detroit, Alabama and San Francisco, I mean, Detroit, Atlanta and San Francisco don't have have necessarily the same perspectives in our local newspapers, whatever. Um, but I find it much more helpful to learn about experiences different from myself, perspectives different from my own, from reading those authentic community sources rather mm-hmm. than asking my news to interpret someone else's point of view for me. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Other advice from my kids. (laughs) Um, Be really careful. Sometimes conversations, particularly with social media, conversations can kind of like float back and forth being between being public and private. And that is a really good way to have someone feel called out and make them feel defensive. So they recommend that you either make sure you're having conversations in a public space where a, a group of people, it may not be public, public, but you know, where more Multiple people are involved and you can kind of address the group instead of a person or that you have those conversations privately. No, that's a really good point. And that's a point that I think um, people either doesn't occur to people or they're sort of unwilling to to concede that point. But yeah, yeah, like it's it's um, and that is, you know, knowledge is not zero sum. Yeah, sort of. And so if you come at someone with that from that position of I am right, there is sort of an, an implicit, therefore you are wrong. Yeah. And, and it can become quite categorical. That's not how conversations work. That's not how trust is formed. Um, I think you're I think you're bringing up a really important dynamic, too, of how, um, you know, there are two sides to the issue, but often one side has one side is in a place of power and like some, some sources are sort of imbued with more power and are, and then the other is oppressed. So there's sort of a, Mm -hmm. a it's, it's like, how do you, this isn't 
this this is sort of I guess tangential, but um how yeah. like is there a way to is there a way to approach that? Like is there sort of do you have advice on how to approach um sources that are um who have constructed authority, but unfortunately uh for everyone else, the authority that they have is is a it's is an oppressive one. Mm. Well, being aware of that is the first. Being aware of that is is the first step. I I think that is a ground truth that one should take into account um, right now. I think, um, actually, so you all are closer to being in academia than I am. Uh, But an example, an example that was given me at one point that I am hoping is true as I repeat it to you. It is my understanding. So in thinking about um, open access resources, like, right. So one of the things that we've now touched on multiple times is in order for kind of democratic access to information, like you look to provide sources that everyone can access and that aren't behind a paywall. Um, I think a piece of that that I understand to be the case that may or may not be widely known is that in many cases to publish something open access, the author pays for that. Yep. Right. So you've got a journal and you're going to publish in the journal and your options are, I give you my hard won research for free and you publish it for my honor behind a paywall or I pay you say $3,000 for the honor of you having publishing my thing where everyone can see it. Right. And sometimes you're attached to an institution that will foot that bill, but not always. Well, and there's the rub, right? Because the, that's really when you think about limited budgets in academia um, and this, you really will know more. So please correct me if I'm wrong, but when you start thinking about, okay, who does that money go to, right? Like sometimes academic can foot the, will foot the bill. The institution will foot the bill. Sometimes they won't. I mean, Amber, you know that They're, you and I both got into this for the money. So yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I guess, right. So, and then also thinking about, um, individuals who are, um, traditional academics or, or trying to be and trying mm-hmm. to be on a tenure track and, and looking right. at you want to be published with as much prestige as possible, like published as often as and like as well received as you can be in order to be granted tenure. And so for those for, for some folks, it, you know, it probably makes more sense just in terms of getting the most out of their effort to have their research published, it, you know, behind a paywall by a, a prominent journal that is not interested in sort of open source, like no matter, like right. an, an academic could feel very strongly about open, open source, open access, but still not be in a position to really do it because they're trying to, have a full-time job and job security. 
And then, yes, and then you kind of add into that historical economic inequities. And, you know, I'm thinking of students who would like to go into fields that are primarily scholarly and are already saying, like, my family needs me. I'm first generation and my family needs me to graduate and go to work. And when you think about just the roadblocks, it's staggering. Um, So our last of sort of our interview questions before we get to the ones we ask all of our very special guests. Just a Um, cry for help. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, right. This is very much a thinly veiled plea for your help. Um, How can we, as people who investigate different topics every week, um, how can we make sure that we're doing the best, most thorough job we can? Is there a uh, checklist, like a good researcher checklist that we can go through? Awesome. I just well, emailed you a PDF. <laughs> that's not that's, what's going to happen, will, is it? Um, oh, you're saying, yeah, no, I didn't email you a PDF. I'm sorry. Uh. Well, let me put it in a different, let me give you hope in a different way. Okay. Again, back That'd to be my, my memoir. Hope in a different third, way. Hope in a different way. Back, back to my third graders who I love. Um, I have always used them as example because there was this one day I was in, I, I was teaching like an after school research course, like speaking of economy and access or economics and access, um, like an after school class where we were actually like getting into research skills. And at one moment I looked up and all these third graders are looking at me with like the mouths hanging open. And I'm like, what, what's wrong? And they're like, how do you type like that? I keep trying, but I've just got these two fingers. Um, So it's really a lot like Daniel Kahneman talks about once again with the fast and slow thinking, Um, you know, that transition from being my third grade self who on a typewriter was using two fingers and hunting and pecking to someone who can touch type that was born of practice, both like stupid typing programs that I was forced to do. Maybe, also when Mavis I, Beacon. Yes. Mavis Beacon. And also when I um, basically flunked out of Latin and they put me in typing because it was the only thing available in the same period in high school. But anyway, both from typing classes, you know, from like formal training, but also just from like doing it. And with some, some metacognitive, you know, push behind that, just being something I was doing, my typing speed has changed a lot. And there's a lot about doing research. It amazes me through practice, the things that I add to my repertoire. And actually, I'd say, like, for me, personally, one of the really cool things about knowing all the cool search things you can do with, for example... Google is that I found that once I kind of internalized different commands, like you can use S I T E colon. So site colon, and then a URL and then some keywords to search within a particular site for any occurrences Mm. of that word. Mm. Mm, Life changing. And there are a bunch of those and like, they're like nine that are really central And like, once you learn them, I found that I would then notice things related to them, right? Like now that somewhere in my deep brain, 
I know that I can use site search, I start noticing web addresses. And then I start noticing patterns. And I notice when the same one comes up more than once, then I think, hey, that keeps coming up and being useful. Maybe I should search across the whole site. Um, so there are a lot of practices about good research that you can kind of build the muscles for over time. Also, you gotta like let it go when it's not important. Kill your darlings. Yes. You don't actually need to know who owns every like pizza website you ever go to. Like, what's the name of the corporation behind it? I'm gonna go do a what is search and find out. Like, yeah, no, I just don't need it, right? Um, so selective attention. I would say, you know, the best thing is learning to imagine your sources. Um, yeah. which, you know, practicing, like you already do it. Like I have my students, uh, ninth graders, you know, during one exercise when we're working on this, I just have them sketch a web page they go to all the time, like ugly 30 seconds, just line drawing. And they know what it looks like. And then I can ask a question about like, what would a site look like that would have this information? And they can totally sketch that out. Right. So you just start thinking about it. And again, there's a lot that comes with that. Like you start noticing differences in register, which is how one writes for different audiences, or you start, I, there's just, there's a lot through that practice. Um, so they aren't easy at the beginning, but there's big payoff. Yeah. Like any skill, yeah. really. Yes. Like any skill, really. And um, like, any person on the interwebs, I may have given eight or 7,000 webinars about these topics and written things. So if you want to learn more, like there, there are sources out there, not just by me, but also by other people that can help. Cool. Yeah. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Our last two questions, we have modified them for your particular background, but these are versions of questions that we ask all our yeah. guests, and it's it's very cool to see similarities and differences between or among mm -hmm. the answers. Uh, so, what is either the best or your favorite part about being a librarian? <laughs> uh, it's the fact that it's my job to be curious. Yeah. And I originally thought that I had two answers. Then I realized it was just that was the answer because I both get to be curious about people um, because 
oh my God, my students make me so happy and my colleagues and my librarian colleagues. Oh my goodness. So I get to be curious about people and I get to like interact and learn from like so great. And then the other thing is I just get to be curious about freaking everything. (laughs) Um, My students are sometimes a little scared frankly, when I'm sitting at the desk to walk into the library, because they never know when I'm going to be like, hey, maybe you're studying for a test. But first, I want to tell you about fog biology, microbiology, and what lives in fog, because you whoa. used to think it was alive, and I want to creep you out, right? Whoa! So like, whoa! And you mentioned Atlas Obscura, JSTOR Daily, like, I just like, oh, my God, yeah. all the things. Yeah. So happy. Yes. Yeah. Really, truly so. That yeah. A, that's a great answer. Yeah. And then the um, another. Uh, yeah, this is always the hard one for everyone. Um, if you could go back in time to one specific moment to answer one of your own burning research questions, what would it be? I'm still stuck on fog is alive. I know. Yeah. I know. I'm setting that aside for now and i want to say compartmentalizing that it was either atlas obscura or jstor daily that that came from um and you're right that was the hardest question and so it's more a source access thing so right now um this actually feels like a kind of shallow answer i'm gonna be honest but um it has entered my bucket list to spend about a month in Atlanta working in local archives because when we started a high level kind of historical research class at my school two years ago, I decided I would do my own research project side by side with the students to make sure I was keeping my skills responsive to what information looks like today. And ha, I was inspired by an Atlas Obscura article Mm -hmm. about why ice cream parlors are called ice cream parlors and got really interested in um, gendered restaurants, which by the way, ice cream they serve there. It. (laughs) Shut up, Anna. (laughs) Okay. What? Something I hadn't kind of, that hadn't clicked for me was that it used to be um, not done for women to go into restaurants by themselves that would go with you know a brother father husband to have a chaperone um and ice cream parlors were literally decorated like parlors they they were like aesthetically they they were (laughs) they were constructed to not look like a restaurant let's not startle the women exactly well it became a ladies place i will say as i recall the outlet this obscure article claimed that they were a ladies place until ladies were like, Ooh, then I can like meet up with my lover there and my chaperones won't see me. But that's a different story and not what I investigated. Mm-hmm. Um, um, my son at the time was doing some research on the temple bombing in Atlanta in the late 1950s and mentioned that uh, Rich's department store, which was the major department store in Atlanta at the time, had a ladies' tea room in it. And we started wondering, given the danger to black male bodies through segregation, if there were actually gendered restaurants in, for example, Atlanta, how protesters approached 
those gendered restaurants and trying to fight for desegregation. As many researchers before me have discovered, you know, like a lot of the sources that are widely available are newspaper sources. And those were often, depending on the newspaper, written for white audiences and therefore told a narrative that feels comfortable. And as I dug in more and more, I found how much kind of reality diverged from kind of the uh, historical record. What? What? Right. And um, in particular, much of the information about kind of the logistical that I was able to find about the logistical decisions being made around distribution of individuals to protest sites um, all came back to this one article. Like when I traced back where the information was from, it was basically this one article that didn't name any of its sources. And it was like a first person account um, of kind of a day spent at headquarters. And so I really dream of like getting up to my elbows in primary sources on that yeah, one. Get up in there. Slash anything I've ever researched ever. <laughs> <laughs> Just Having primary sources is the most viscerally satisfying thing ever. So I guess not. it's not a time machine. You need just like a pause button. So then you can be like, bing, and then you have unlimited time to yes. get into archives. I suspect that, uh, yes, and, you know, a place to stay and so forth. But yeah. um, I, I think that, that it's funny that you say that. You're right. Uh, it never even occurred to me that I would like travel back in time to answer a question. <laughs> I was always just like, I thought that there was going to end to be there, like in headquarters with, with that. Yeah, person. you can have your own firsthand yeah. account. But, but I would note that I think that firsthand account might also not tell the same story given my identity. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, well, you know things from the future, so that would be weird, and who knows what that would do to the timeline. And oh. I know. Well, oh, messing no. with the timeline always does seem like... I don't know how one would do research if there were actually multiple concurrent divergent timelines. <laughs> I think that would require an entirely different set of research skills than I have at my disposal. It would be a new discipline. Okay, I'm just having feelings now. Whatever. <laughs> okay, you're having feelings. I know that fog is alive and I'm not okay with it. And Amber is having a problem with intersecting timelines. So we're all in a great place. <laughs> we're all in a good place. If it helps, low strata clouds apparently also do as well. But here's the cool thing about that it. Doesn't- help i mean i am i'm delighted this is usually my role on the podcast is to say something about the natural world that completely freaks amber out for the rest of the episode or as was true yesterday to bring up something that then drives her into a never-ending wikipedia hole uh about bananas specifically yeah about bananas bananas a banana path yeah down the banana garden path path the now past 24 know. hours has been me telling Anna things about bananas. <laughs> okay, so my seventh graders claim that we share 50% of our DNA with bananas, which I think, you yeah, know, that's true. a... Yeah? Well, the thing is that all living multicellular yeah. organisms yeah. share a big chunk of DNA just because we all de- are derived from, if you go back far enough, a common ancestor. And a lot of DNA 
just kind of hangs out and, and is sort of a holdover from millions of years worth of of evolution and sort of genetic transfer. But it's the small chunks of DNA that are different that are the really big deal. I, I figured it was something yeah. along those this lines. This didn't come Although, up in my banana research. There was one blonde kid in the group and the other kids were all claiming that she was 60%. But she was more banana. More banana she because more of yellow hair. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you Science know, that checks out. Yep. Clearly, we were strong on science in that whole conversation. <laughs> so here's a, and, and you'll probably go deeper and get more precise. I was just trying to translate into words that t- I thought that like 10th graders would be like, say that and I'm in and I will pay attention and make an effort to read this paragraph. And I turned out to be wrong, but whatever. The cool thing is that since, you know, fog comes from things like the ocean churning and like little bits, this oh, is yeah. the not- right goes up in the air yeah so there are actually there's ocean life and then it like comes over land and then dust is blowing around so it's one of the few habitats where you can have a drop of water with both terrestrial and marine life oh that's so cool right wow yes that is the happy part just the whole william blake poem to see the world in a grain of sand and something 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 i was gonna say something profound but i and also that William Blake quote is pulled secondhand from Lara Croft to the Mater, so. Oh, gross. I am Wait, aware of the power of my sources. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Why not? Tasha, thank you so much for talking to us and enlightening us and helping us be better researchers. We appreciate it. And hopefully our listeners will find this stuff really, really useful or at least, you know, change. It might, I, I bet people will start thinking about thinking. Thank you. It's oh, it's so great to have you here. I'm yes. so glad that you're sharing your knowledge with, with all of our <laughs> listeners. Yes, 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 yes. All right. Well, thank you so much. And listeners, as always, we will be back in your ears next week with new content. And you can find all of that at all of the places you do the podcasts, uh, Google Play, Spotify. Although Google Play is going away now. So maybe not there Um, (laughs) (laughs) on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Yeah. And you can find all of, we can find us on social media, on Facebook, at the Dirt Podcast, on Twitter, where, what are we? At Dirt Podcast. At Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at the Dirt Pod. Yep. And all of that is over on our website, thedirtpod.com. And so is merch. And you can go click on news on our website and you can go find the link that says sponsor an episode if you want us to talk about an archaeological or anthropological topic of your choosing. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members.
Thanks again and have a great day.